the good news about bravery is that it is learned. So all you have to do is practice. And of course, you don't practice by immediately signing up for skydiving lessons. Welcome to Midlife Mixtape, the podcast. I'm Nancy Davis Coe, and we're here to talk about the years between being hip and breaking one. Where do I belong? Tell me why I'm here and what's taking this long. When can I move on? Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com forward slash midlife mixtape. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. So many great books, so little time. I don't know about you guys, but I'm always way behind when it comes to the number of books I'd like to read and the number I have time to get to. So what better solution than listening on the go? If you want to give it a try, head over to audibletrial.com forward slash midlife mixtape for your free audiobook. Hi, you guys. Welcome to the Midlife Mixtape Podcast, where we celebrate midlife with humor, heart, and a really good beat. I'm Nancy, or as Siri likes to call me, Alishant. My kids trained Siri to call me that many years ago, but I'm the one who decided to make Siri an Australian male, in part because I love getting the laugh every single day when Siri says something to me like, Uh-oh, Alishant, looks like you're not connected to the Wi-Fi, or Coming up, Alishant, exit to Geeville by Liz Fair. I only learned this week that Siri can help you find and subscribe to the Midlife Mixtape Podcast. You guys maybe already knew that, but you can just say something like, play the Midlife Mixtape Podcast, or play my newest podcasts, or play the 10th episode of the Midlife Mixtape Podcast. And if you're already listening to an episode, you can say, Siri, subscribe to this show. And maybe Siri will say something to you like, Alishant, no walkers, mate, already sorted, good on ya. That's if you set it up right. You know, it was kind of weird this week because my male Australian Siri suddenly became a female Australian Siri, and it felt like switching it back would undermine their identity, and that is none of my beeswax, so I guess Siri is a woman now. I am very happy to introduce you this week to my guest, Caroline Paul, author of the New York Times bestselling The Gutsy Girl, Escapades for Your Life of Epic Adventure, which is a rally cry for girl power. It's lean in for middle grade girls, set not in the workplace, but on bicycles, tree branches, sea kayaks, and cliff edges. Caroline's a former San Francisco firefighter and a pilot, and in 2018, she wrote You Are Mighty, A Guide to Changing the World, which teaches middle grade kids the tactics of civil engagement and protest. So let's gather our gumption and hang out with Caroline Paul. All right, I am here today with Caroline Paul. Thank you so much for coming on the Midlife Mixtape Podcast, Caroline. Oh, Nancy, I'm really psyched. Thank you. We always start off with one important question. What was your first concert and what were the circumstances? My first concert was Jackson Brown. Ah, nice. Where? Tanglewood in Massachusetts, which is traditionally a venue for classical music and a little bit stuffy. It's an outdoor venue. At least this is the way I looked at it back then. But I have to say that I was a pretty square kid, as was my identical twin. We were both square kids. (laughs) So going to a concert by Jackson Brown seemed just so, uh, just like we were just busting out all these radical moves. You were basically punk rock at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And are you still a fan? Do you ever get to catch a show? No, no. Gosh, I'm still a square. I don't go to shows that much <laughs> um, unless a 14-year-old needs a 
chaperone. Maybe that's the thing to do. Let that let the children lead. <laughs> exactly. I have to say, I, I, in your TED talk, you talked about your Guinness World Record attempt, and I'm going to put a link to Caroline's TED talk so everyone can listen to the whole story. But would you like to say what the what the field was? What your category was, at least a category of of world record setting efforts. Right. Well, I wasn't very skilled at anything, so I had to pick something that you that was pretty intuitive. So I settled on crawling. Right. Okay. So if you guys want the full story, you got to go listen to the TED Talk. But I wanted to tell you that I was in the Guinness Book of World Records for just a couple of weeks for something that was almost the same level of skill. I was part of the longest soul train line in 2015 in Oakland. A couple of friends and I went down and we were part of a line where we stood with it was like 337 people and we shuffled side to side for four and a half hours getting our way up to the top of the soul train line and then we had like 90 seconds of glory going down the center it was awesome so i don't think it ever went into print or anything because phoenix did it with 342 people a week later but what? still yeah that's dastardly crawling would have taken a lot more a lot more effort i think than what we were doing so Caroline, you've literally written the book and given the TED Talk on the importance of raising gutsy girls. And I want to know first, why was this subject so important to you? Well, I think because I'm a girl myself, and I think I valued this idea of gutsiness from a pretty young age, but I saw a lot of my peers did not even then. And certainly I see that women my age, yeah, I'm 55, definitely don't. I don't think we really value bravery and gutsiness in our lives. And I think that's really held us back. Mm -hmm. And so it's something that I really became aware of when I was a San Francisco firefighter. When I was a firefighter, it was back in the late 80s, and it was very unusual to see a woman being a firefighter or sort of, frankly, doing anything that was just a little risky. And you were the 15th female firefighter in a department of 1500. Is that right? Yes. Bit of a trailblazer. I, you know, I feel like the 15th is exponentially easier than the first. There was a path. It wasn't that trampled yet, but there was definitely some women before me that deserve the big accolades. But that said, yeah, I was very much outnumbered in the San Francisco Fire Department. And you know, honestly, people were just so always surprised to see a woman as a firefighter. And that was actually kind of fine. I get it. it. There weren't, there just simply weren't that many of us. But I think what really surprised them, and, and there were, of course, a lot of doubts too, right? Because mm -hmm. it was a very physical job and you have to be very physically strong to be a firefighter. So it didn't actually surprise me that much that people weren't quite sure whether women in general or I in particular could physically do the job. But what really surprised me is they did not think I was brave enough to do the job. That mm. I did not understand. And it wasn't just men and it wasn't just the firemen. It was men and women, um, civilians and firefighters. And that was really disheartening. In your TED Talk, you say you're not, you characterize yourself as not against fear, just pro-bravery. So what's the difference? And why do you think people underestimated you on that front? Well, I mean, I think there's a big difference between being sort of pro-bravery, and that's the underlying paradigm by which you decide to live your life. And I had begun to see from a kind of a pretty young age, but I, I don't think I had the smarts or even the actual words, maybe, the, maybe even the culture didn't have the words at the time to really understand this, but I could see that we just didn't value and as a result, teach bravery in girls. Mm -hmm. And yet that's, that's the paradigm that boys grow up in, a bravery paradigm 
paradigm. They have to approach most of what they do with bravery. And we are taught to approach almost everything we do with fear. And that's a big difference in how you end up living your life. So when I say I'm pro-bravery, what I mean is, is that we should also have a bravery paradigm. And the reason I say this is because fear really shuts things down. And I think men realize that. It mm-hmm. stops you from acting. It's really about not getting outside your comfort zone. If you follow a fear paradigm, you're never going to get outside your comfort zone. And uh, you're also not going to be able to practice risky, exciting things in your life. Let me just back up a little and say, uh, you're a parent, Nancy. Right. Does this resonate with you when I say this? I mean, we have we have said for a long time, our two girls were house cats. <laughs> I mean, they, they've come to it in different ways. These are girls who audition for performances and go out on a stage and situations to perform where, you know, I don't know where they get the nerve to do it. But if they didn't want to go do something risky, I wasn't out there saying, yes, you should try it. I was like, great. That aligns with my interests too. What I've noticed, and I think what parents around me also start to notice when I just bring it up, is that we actually parent our girls differently than our boys. And you don't have a have boys, right? Right. I have two girls. You know, when you when you have a boy, and and there are studies that back this up. When you have a boy, you don't caution them a lot, and if they do say they're scared about something, you push them to move out of that fear paradigm because you're worried for their future. Right. If they approach life like that. A boy approaching life like that is a shocker. And parents train them early to uh, take risks and to play hard and play muddy. But with girls, we are, again, and there are studies that show this, we just caution them way more. We say, don't do that. We say, watch out. We say, be careful. And if they embrace the fear that we're telling them to, we encourage it. And then what ends up happening as girls is that we learn that there's a lot of things to be scared of. Right. There's a lot of things we shouldn't do if they're dangerous because we're going to hurt ourselves. And if we are going to do them, we should ask for help. Now, when you carry that from girlhood into adulthood, those aspects we think we're protecting a girl by instilling become a real burdens as women. Because we don't trust our own decision making, we don't have the confidence to look at what we consider a risky situation. And it's not just jumping off cliffs, but it's asking for a raise, it's speaking up at a meeting. When we feel fear, we automatically, because we do at risky situations, we've been inculcated with this, we then become way more passive, look to others to make decisions for us. And look, this, this isn't parents who don't care about their girls. We think we're doing the best for a girl when we encourage caution. We don't see actually that we're holding them back from learning all these really important traits like risk assessment, leadership, teamwork, when we're cautioning them so young right? in places that there's really not big dangers, except maybe like stitches. Well, and it's layered on top of the general trend towards helicopter parenting and then now lawnmower parenting where you're clearing out every obstacle for your kid. And I think, you know, we are the generation of parents that really have to think deliberately about making those opportunities for our kids. And one of the things that I find really heartening is there's, uh, you know, both on the local and the national stage, there's a lot of uh, student activism on various topics. We're getting ready to go into a, but it's very likely a strike with the Oakland school district and the kids leading the outcry, you know, in support of the teachers and the student walkouts and everything. It's the girls it's, and, you know, you look at some of the 
um, the survivors of school gun shootings who are speaking out on the national stage, like Emily Gonzalez, it's the girls. And so maybe part of it is these girls are figuring it out for themselves in this generation that they need to step up and let go of that fear. You know, honestly, I, I recently published a book for kids about activism. And at the very last minute, my publisher said, you know what? Oh my gosh, we, you know, you have a brand, you're the gutsy girl. You have uh, the gutsy girl book behind you that was so successful. Suddenly we want to make this activism book for girls only. Oh, and let me just say the, the gutsy girl book that Caroline's referring to is the gutsy girl escapades for your life of epic adventure, which came out in 2016. And I think you're going to tell us about you are mighty a guide to changing the world, which came out just last year. Thank you. Yes. And my publisher actually had already handed it in said, Oh, we should make this just for girls. And there was a lot of things wrong with that. The first being that you can't wait till you hand in a book. You can't just change a book. You can't just change the pronouns or... Go back and do find, replace, make it girls. <laughs> right. You need to think deeply about how to communicate with your audience. And if my audience was going to be just girls, it's very different. And I felt quite destabilized by this. And I was really unsure. And then I spoke to a parent about this and she said, oh, no, do not write a book on activism just for girls. Girls already take the burden of trying to make things right. Mm. So when we see Emma Gonzalez and all these really kick-ass activist girls, I'm psyched for that. But it doesn't actually mean that there's something new and different going on. Mm. I don't think. Because again, it's girls who are often cleaning up these kind of things. Right. Where I really believe girls need work is in the area of physical risk when they're kids. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that is not because I want them to later be these adventurers or outdoor kids who go hang gliding or they become firefighters too. That's not it at all. But I think the unique lessons kids learn when they're in the outdoors engaging in what scientists call risky play, those lessons are unique and really powerful. They really teach you confidence. They really teach you self-determination and hazard assessment. I love to see girls standing up, don't get me wrong, but I don't know that this is necessarily proof that girls are pushing their own boundaries. Mm -hmm. I'd have to look deeper at it, I guess is what I'm saying. This might just be the same old story of girls shouldering moral responsibilities. It sounds like the prescription for us as parents and, you know, someday grandparents is that we want to support our kids when they're doing risky play and, and make sure that girls are getting out there and getting dirty and learning how to climb up high things and jump from tall things and all the stuff that we let boys do without a blink of an eye because it's just it's just fun play for them. Yeah, I I really believe that there are, you know, unique traits that come from learning physical risk at a very young age. And of course, when I'm talking about physical risk for an 8-year-old, I'm not talking about hang gliding. No. But I am talking about encouraging them to push outside their comfort zones in the physical arena of the playground. Um, on their bikes, on their on their skateboards, because yeah, the lessons you learn are invaluable and unique. A lot of it is that we learn what it feels like to be truly afraid, and we learn what it feels like to be truly brave. Because I really feel that women, especially, do not know that feeling. They can't. They've for us, and and especially I think as we reach middle age and all this stuff just locks in, and also we're not maybe tested as much, mm -hmm. we're not as curious about it, we attach the word fear or I'm scared to a lot of scenarios where it doesn't really apply. And it's because we haven't really learned the nuance of that emotion like men have had to. Mm -hmm. 
Men have to because, you know, when they say they're scared, they have to really mean it. Right. So as a firefighter, I can tell you that men have told me that they're scared. And I understand. I understood. Like we were facing, a, you know, a big explosion, a big fire. And those are arenas where, yes, being scared is completely appropriate. But it's again, it's not necessarily appropriate to then let that fear take over. It's just an emotion you're having that reflects a situation and that you use. But I think as women, especially women who aren't fire women <laughs> who've never learned this, we apply the word fear to a lot of situations where in fact we're just nervous or unselfconfident, anxious, uh, maybe even exhilarated. And so the younger you start to learn what this emotion fear is, actually is, and what this emotion bravery is, mm-hmm or courage or pushing that boundary, you you don't have to f- start sorting that out. So what advice do you have for people who are our age? I'm, I'm in my early 50s as well. So let's say we don't always feel like gutsy women. What are the things that we can do in our lives to unleash our inner gutsy girl? And and for male listeners, who you know, what can you do to help the women around you to access that bravery and courage and recognize things as exhilarating but not scary? Well, I think we need to notice, first of all, how often that we do say we're scared and we have to be held accountable for exactly what we're trying to say. And also look at the situation and then say, are we really scared? Or we just don't really want to fix this dishwasher. (laughs) Because when we say we're scared, the men in our life step in. And that means we don't have to do it. And trust me, I have done this as well, where I look around and someone else will do it for me. But what you're doing is you're just limiting yourself. Okay, maybe the dishwasher is not that important, but that habit is limiting. So what I tell women is to notice how often they say they're scared then really state to themselves that they don't really value fear enough to stay in that paradigm. Because you you really have to make that decision. You can't just do it because I say it's really good for you. Start embracing bravery as something that opens up your life, that idea of bravery. To define bravery for you, because again, it's not You don't have to be a firefighter to be brave. It's getting outside your comfort zone. We have been told for so long that when it gets uncomfortable, go ask for help. So the way that we get better at that is to practice. Because the good news about bravery is that it is learned. So all you have to do is practice. And of course, you don't practice by immediately signing up for skydiving (laughs) lessons. You practice in small ways throughout your day. Anytime you feel discomfort, you notice that now you're pushing outside your comfort zone and then you go for it and see how that feels. See how it feels to state to yourself, guess what? I'm being brave right now. And I think people really find it opens up their life and it's exhilarating, which by the way, and I talk about this in my TED talk, fear and excitement feel very similar. Mm -hmm. So, you know, physically it's, it triggers the same reactions of, of adrenaline. So you get the tight throat and the hot face and the sweat. And women often think that what they're feeling is fear and therefore it must be bad and the situation must be something they shouldn't go into. And that is not always true. In fact, it's often not true that they're also feeling exhilaration. And so now if you think it's fear, you've now shut down your life just that much more because you're not doing something. So once we start practicing bravery, we become way more aware of what elements are exhilaration and excitement and what elements are fear. And of course, we still have to listen to fear. I am not against fear, like I said. It's, a, it's an important emotion. It's been programmed in us in order to give us clues about what's going on. And there are, there, there are people that are actually without fear physiologically, and they get themselves in a lot of bad situations. We do not want to be fearless. 
and I'm not fearless. People think I am, but it's just not true. What I am is someone who values bravery. And, you know, inherent to bravery is fear. You have fear when you're being brave. Right. That doesn't mean you, you can't do it. But for a lot of women, being fearful means something bad is going on because it's been, that's been told to us from the beginning. You know, this, this again, this comes from a culture that believes that the world is more dangerous for women and girls. And maybe they're right, but the antidote is not to instill fear in the girl. It is to instill bravery so that they have the wherewithal to look at situations, assess the risk, have the confidence to make their own decisions. Because what is the most vulnerable thing to do is instill fear in, in someone and then instruct them to look to someone else for advice. I mean, that gets you in more trouble as you get older as a teen or as a young woman than anything. Right. So learning at a really young age to be really confident in what you're feeling and approaching things with bravery doesn't mean you're a risk taker and reckless at all. That's another, I think, misunderstanding. And it doesn't even mean you're going to actually do whatever it is, but it means you're facing it with bravery, not fear. And to me, that protects you way more. And I think parents are really, really coming to that. Mm -hmm. The idea of learning bravery really resonates because when I was a kid, I went to horseback riding camp every summer. And by the time I was about 16, I was so good at riding horses and I could ride. I rode Western, I rode bareback, I jumped, I did all this stuff. And I kept it up a little bit, but after I had kids, I got really fearful to get on, the, on a horse because I kept thinking to myself, if I have an accident, I could never forgive myself. You know, it's not worth it to me to leave these children motherless because I like to go to the dark place. When I'm given the opportunity, I want to go straight there. So, you know, for about 10 years, I didn't ride horses and I realized I was not going to be able to get back on them again without some help. And so for my 40th birthday, my sister and I went and did a cowgirl camp at a mm. dude ranch in Arizona. And my sister is a better rider than I am. And the first day that, you know, they put us on these horses and it comes back pretty naturally if you've done it as much as I had at, at that point. But I was nervous and they took us into a corral and there were longhorn cattle there. And they told us to cut the cattle. We had to separate three specific cattle and put them into a pen. And the first day was so terrifying. And by the fourth day, I was like riding into the center, grabbing them by the horns, hauling them along with me. I was literally pulling cattle into the pen and it was so fun it was one of the best vacations I ever took. My sister and I still talk about it, you know, a dozen years later. And it was all about this opportunity to, yeah, I'm terrified right now, but I'm just going to stick with it. I just totally see what you're talking about and just facing it, naming it, and just staying on the horse. And because it is fun. I mean, that's the yeah, other thing. Yeah, it's super it's fun. It's that simple. It's, um, it's not about all testing your character. <laughs> the rewards are amazing uh, that go beyond yeah. just becoming like a braver person. You're actually really leading a fulfilling life that way. And for the record, even though my sister took home the first place prize for the barrel racing, I actually had a faster time. There was a mismanagement in the uh, in the record keeping. So we also still fight about that 12 years later. Oh, but so. now you got to say it on a podcast. So then we won, Sally. I won. I'm <laughs> saying it now. So Caroline, you know, if my guests were mixtapes, I think yours would contain the most genres of music because we've, we've talked about you being a firefighter. You are, in fact, a paraglider pilot. You're an author of so many wonderful books, and I'm going to leave links to them, guys, from the show notes so you can find them really easily. Some of those books you've collaborated with your wife, the wonderful illustrator Wendy McNaughton, including one of, I think, the best concepts for a book ever, Lost Cat, a true story of love, desertion, and GPS technology. When you guys, you stuck a GPS on your cat to find out where it went during the I, day. Yeah, we did. That is my one of, actually, that's my favorite book too. It's love, 
desperation and GPS. Oh, de- I'm sorry. De- That's okay. Yeah, there we go. That's okay. That's desperation, brilliant. desertion. The cat was deserting or was the cat deserting? Read the book and find out. And then for good measure, your twin is an actress, Alexandra Paul, who is known for her role on Baywatch. And you have a great essay, which I'm also going to link to, on being a twin where you talk about you you going into a fire as a San Francisco firefighter and people thinking it was a Baywatch shoot. That's a crazy story. So I'm just wondering, did you always suspect you'd play so many different roles in your life? I think at a very young age, I knew, and I'm not trying to be coy here, so don't misunderstand. I'm really being serious. I knew that I was kind of mediocre at things. <laughs> I, really, I, I believe, and my twin is the same way. We believe that if we really are dogged about something, that we'll become you know, pretty good. Hard work will pay off. But we also knew that we're just not going to be top dog and that's okay. Let's try to get as many experiences as possible. And and this was partly from my own mom who, when she was a young girl, had a mom who was very fearful and didn't let her and her sister do much at all. Mm-hmm. And when she was in her 20s, she went on a ski trip and she didn't die and she didn't get hurt. And she realized how much fun she had. And she realized that she had been missing a lot simply by not sort of engaging in some mild outdoor things like skiing. Tomfoolery. Yeah, exactly. And so she, when we were kids, she wanted us to simply have a more exciting childhood than she had. And she wasn't trying to instill characteristics that I'm talking about of risk assessment or leadership. Back in the 60s, that just wasn't what the parenting was about. I think you just, I know that she just basically opened the door, her and my father, and we just went out to play and we came back at dark. Mm -hmm. But she wanted us, my father and her, they both wanted us to have exposure to a lot of things. So that when we were adults, we could pick and choose who we were going to be. And these aren't these aren't monumental. These are we skied, we bicycled, we each had to learn an instrument, even though none of us are musical. We went to a church that was Episcopal, not because my parents were Episcopal, but because they wanted us to have exposure to religion and spirituality. So that's the way we were brought up. And through that, I think my twin and I realized being dogged is basically our best trait as... As, as seen through my world record attempt at crawling, which was doggedness on display. So while I don't think I necessarily had the maturity to imagine my life, it doesn't surprise me. Is there anything about being at the midpoint that changed your process for evaluating all these new things that come into your life? I wonder if it makes you more inclined or less inclined to try new things or to seek out new new opportunities and new experiences. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really easy to get in a rut. When, as you get older and if you're content like I am, I have a great life, you can pretty much just sort of lays around on your metaphorical laurels and not do much else. And I, but I also think that learning new things is really important to just keep the brain going and challenging oneself. But you have to believe in that. And so in small ways, I do embrace new things. You know, the thing about midlife that I really love is that so I'm 55, I'm married, and I've been with Wendy for you know almost 11 years. But there's always that pressure, has been that pressure as a woman to care about what other people think and to look a certain way. And as I get older, and my a lot of my friends are having facial surgery or Botox, and my twin sister has Botox, and she she will not mind me saying this at all. And I really feel like we're at this really interesting moment 
where we we have to redefine our sexuality mm-hmm. or let's probably that's not the right word how about attractiveness mm-hmm. because as women we've always been judged on our sort of sexual desirability i mean even me as a lesbian i'm not i'm still susceptible to that even though i have no interest in having a relationship with a man there the approval of you know, their gaze is still the male gaze programmed into me. And so as you get older, as women, we know this, we become more and more invisible. And I am really determined not to try to hold on to that kind of attractiveness because I don't, I think it's impossible. I think it's a weird myth that we really even want that kind of reciprocity. I don't want to be, I, I'm married. So, and I'm right. happy. <laughs> I'm not into men. And so I'm really interested in how we navigate this new phase where we cannot negotiate on our looks. Well, people still try, but I don't think you should. I think it's disheartening for oneself to try to do that. Right. That currency was never really that valid. And it's just a big, how can we say it's a con now against us to keep trying to hold on to that. And we should embrace this new, what is the word? Is it, it's not sexuality, because is it? Well, it's wisdom. I think that's, I think it's where we get to trade on our wisdom rather than our looks a little bit. Is that kind of in the right direction? Because I think it starts to be a lot more about who we are as people and not the packaging. And the packaging should never have been important, but it's almost impossible to keep it important now. So... But we don't want to like let ourselves go. So we no, I'm not saying we're all going to wear moos, right? But we're still presenting ourselves to people, and so our that sort of connection is important to us. And so now the question is, I think we really have to think: what is the connection that we're looking for that is fulfilling for us in our social lives? And it used to be, I think, for a lot of us, just mm-hmm. to like turn ahead or desirability and that's just not relevant anymore. And I, again, I watch friends of mine struggle with this, especially straight women, but lesbians too, for sure. And I I just wish there was a movement that would help us redefine ourselves. And I'm not saying that we lose our sexuality. I'm just saying that the currency is different is all right. And it's, it's not just wisdom. It's, it's just a whole, it's the package has changed. So let's, let's value that. Yeah, no, I think it's it's a valid point and I feel I feel myself going through it. I see my friends doing it as well where on the one hand, you've thought of yourself in a, in a certain way for so many years and in some ways it's a relief to not think of yourself that way anymore and in, and in some ways there's a bit of mourning, you know, that I don't have the cachet or the ability to hold attention in the same way that I used to. So what does that mean? And it's I don't know. It's an interesting thing. And it's it's nice to talk about it because I think for so many of us, we see that all we get is marketed to, it, you know, I don't want the damn anti-aging creams. I'm aging. It's nothing's going to reverse that. You know, I just want to feel comfortable. Aging should be kind of cool, really. I mean, I think certainly right. for men, I think it can be really cool as they come into their own. I, I can't really speak for my male friends, but it seems to be something besides losing one's hair at a younger age. Which works for some guys let's yeah. let's be honest oh, yeah, yeah. in some yeah. cases that's a plus but I, I just think we need as women to get together and 
sort of have a new definition of attractiveness on it that's way more holistic. Well, I think we just found the topic for your next book. Yeah. I think you need to write this book so we can, we'll have a, a guidebook to follow. I don't think so. I'm quite the person, but I think there's a book out there that's for someone to write. And I'm putting it out there. I think it, it's gutsy to allow yourself to redefine the way you perceive yourself moving through the world. Mm-hmm. So there, that's how I'm tying it back to you. Now it's your book. Go. <laughs> okay. One last question for you. Caroline, what one piece of advice do you have for people younger than you or do you wish you could go back and tell yourself? I, I'm not good at advice for anybody and certainly not for my younger self because I just wouldn't have listened. The only thing I tell my God kids or I was telling my God kids, the, basically the only thing I could really impart to them was how to put a duvet cover on a comforter. I know how to do that. And that I taught my God kid, Ashley, when she went off to UC Santa Cruz. I was very proud about that. That's a life skill. That's a life skill. And the other one is simply to look people in the eye. I just find that kids do not, and I think parents need to teach that super early, and I tell my God kids that. Oh, and also, please, okay, now I sound like a curmudgeon. We have to eliminate the word like from our vocabulary, the filler word. Right. And I have been really gobsmacked by the way young people talk, and not even just young people, actually. Well, I'll be editing all the likes out of this interview after I talk to you. So you will say, <laughs> yeah. she never said it at all. Well, no, I, I definitely say it. And I actually was chastised for it as a kid. I said, you know, as a kid, because I don't think like was around, but I said, you know, in a speech off. And this, I remember this woman came up to me and she said, there was a really nice speech, but just so you know, you say, you know, all the time. And I was the arrogant little 14 year old and didn't really absorb what she was saying, but I think it stuck with me because now that I'm being a curmudgeon, and and I recently spoke at a school and sat in on a class and the teacher allowed kids to say like constantly. So that's my terrible advice for young people. It's not terrible advice. We've gotten to this age. Okay. We're allowed to express our thoughts. Otherwise, I, they're great. They're great. Young kids <laughs> these days, they're seriously great. They're awesome. They know how to put on duvet covers and like they know how to look you in the eye. So... Well, Caroline Paul, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm going to include links to everything on the show notes page. So I encourage you guys to go check it out. And uh, thanks so much for sharing your story. I really appreciate you being here today. Oh, thank you, Nancy. It was great. Okay, you guys, this was episode 49. So you know what that means. I'm sending out a marching band for episode 50, which airs on March 12th. Actually, what I'm doing is another listener contributed episode. And what I want to know is what one piece of advice do you, the listener, have for people younger than you? Or do you wish you could go back and tell yourself? And we can all acknowledge that even if we did go back and tell ourselves, we were stubborn teenagers who would not have listened. But still, what would you like to go back and say? There are a lot of ways for you to send that advice in to me by March 7th, please. That gives me time to put the episode together. The first one I'm going to beg you to do is to leave me a voicemail right from your computer. If you go to midlifemixtape.com, you'll see a button on the right-hand side that says advice to your younger self. Just click that button and you can start recording in one click with your computer speaker and microphone. So I would love for people to do this because it's fun to hear your advice in your voice. You can also record a voice memo into your phone and email it to dj at midlifemixtape.com. And again, it's an easy way for me to hear your advice in your actual words. If you'd prefer, you can email me your advice at dj at midlifemixtape.com or send me a tweet at midlifemixtape or over on Instagram. There's a post that people are commenting on and it's pretty darn funny. There's some good stuff in there. 
So from everybody who sends in an answer, I'm going to choose one lucky winner to receive Mixtape, the song and scenario card game. It's hilarious. I got it for Christmas for my niece. And basically, they give you a hypothetical situation and you and your opponents try to fight over which song you suggest is the right one for that particular moment. So one of you will get your very own mixtape game if you send in your contribution for episode 50. Okay, guys, like Carolyn says, stay off your metaphorical laurels this week. Do something that helps you learn the difference between fear and exhilaration. Oh, and you know what? If you do, let me know. I want to know. And I will talk to you guys next time. I wanna be, I wanna be free by